With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's get right into a topic with our guest, James Conroy, author of Jefferson's White House, Monticello. Is it Monticello or Monticello? Monticello. Monticello on the Potomac. I love biographies. Of course, you love, you got to love Thomas Jefferson. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. I'm going to start big picture and then focus down into a chronological um, mode, and then we'll get big picture again at the end. What were Thomas Jefferson's greatest achievements? Uh, three. I noticed that you had listed in your website, but I didn't go as far as to look what they were because I wanted to ask you. Well, it's interesting. Uh, apart from being president, he asked that three things be listed on his tombstone. One was uh, the founder of the University of Virginia. Uh, another was the uh, author of the uh, Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. And uh, the third was the Declaration of Independence, but he did not mention being president of the United States. Interesting. Did, yeah. he, did he not like that experience, or did he feel he was kind of like, uh, oh, John Adams, a great founder but not a great president? Well, I, I don't know is the short answer, but um, I think he took pride in being a catalyst for big changes, you know, and for really uh, lifetime and post-lifetime achievements, and those three are pretty big. i take any one of those. Absolutely. What were the attributes Jefferson possessed that allowed him to be great? What were his tools? And and the other side of that question is, what was the the, the context that, that made those tools so valuable that he was able to shine? Yeah. Well, the first one is a brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, I think he's probably the, the smartest president we ever had. Um, and uh, not only in political theory and uh, things of that type or writing political uh, documents as he did, but also in anything ranging from architecture to biology, geology, inventions, uh, parliamentary procedure. The guy, the list just goes on forever. He's just a brilliant guy. That's number one. Uh, number two, even people who disagreed with him politically almost always liked him personally. Very charming, personable guy that people liked and, and enjoyed being around. So that's a real politician's skill. I guess so. I, the, the notion that you can be liked and effective seems to have been lost. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was, uh, you know, people who went in to, to meet him and talk with him expecting to, to hate him uh, were, were immediately taken with his personality and his charm and his charisma, really. Just a really uh, natural, a natural. If you're going to teach somebody, teach me to be like Thomas Jefferson so people <laughs> like me more, what, what would you tell me, how would you tell me to act? What did he actually do if he would sit in the room? Well, the first thing he would do would make you immediately comfortable, you know, which is they say is the definition of good manners, that he would, he would have a knack and was brought up to, to be extremely polite and courteous to everybody. 
Secondly, he had a very good sense of humor, which I think is little talked about. But in all of my reading of him, uh, I think he's got a real wit and a uh, casual sense of humor. Self-deprecating humor, you know, which is a, always a good quality in a, you know, a major figure like that. And um, just a, uh, a deep knowledge of just about every subject he spoke. I forget, four or five languages, uh, you know, deeply read in just about everything um, in, in close communication with many of the great minds of his day. But he could also talk to a blacksmith and a plumber and uh, well, didn't have plumbers, but a blacksmith or a carpenter, uh, you know, good old ordinary folk that uh, he'd feel comfortable with as well. That's right. No pipes. Not really. Pipes. Not really. Yeah. Uh, actually, that's one of the innovations that he was in on uh, indoor plumbing in the White House. It was brand new really then. And he introduced it there. Which brings me to the title, Jefferson's White House, Monticello on the Potomac. Is that the kind of thing that you're referring to when you call it Monticello on the Potomac, that he brought his, he kind of treated it like he did Monticello and made it a science a yeah. science place, a place of science? Well, yes. Uh, one, of the, one of the major uh, interesting things about him and, and his White House, I think, is he, he made a kind of a salon out of it. You know, he would have uh, dinners three, four times a week for 12, 14 people. And um, really a key to his, uh, his approach to things. And much of the time he had politicians, but he would also have inventors and philosophers and musicians and artists, uh, all the great minds of the day. You know, Robert Fulton, the steamboat guy, um, uh, Charles Wilson Peale, who was a great painter at the time, uh, Tom Paine, you know, uh, yeah. that, common that, sense. It, that also seems to be, have been lost. Yeah. In the White House. Yeah, well, definitely. You know, the president can have anybody he wants, uh, anytime he wants, um, or at least most presidents can. But uh, it reminded me, I'm old enough to, re to remember Kennedy's administration. It's very much like that. You know, all the great minds and great figures of the day uh, coming over for dinner. Pretty cool. And I love when these when books like yours come in. I really I love them, and I'm glad that you could come in in person. So let's go to the young childhood the kind of context and environment that uh, Jefferson grew up in. Was it 1743? Uh, something like that? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, I'm not certain. but So seventeen mid-1700s, what's, what's life like? Well, he grew up in the mountains in Virginia, um, very much on the edge of civilization. In fact, probably past the edge. Um, and uh, had that kind of Western orientation. Because keep in mind, the country ended, you know, right. <laughs> right so kind of there. a Daniel Boone vibe yeah, where yeah, he was. Yeah. A lot uh, of outdoors, uh, rugged, individual kind of thing. Well, uh, put it this way. He's, he came from a wealthy family. So you know, not he, quite as rugged as... Not, the, not a frontiersman. Okay. Uh, his father was quite wealthy. I, I, I don't think it went back more than another generation before that. How did his father make the money? Planter, you know, Virginia farmer. Okay. Um, did his father rely on slaves? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was the system, um, and he was born into that. But he um, he grew up in, in the mountains in Virginia in a wealthy family, went to uh, William and Mary, started, I think, at the age of 15 or so, and uh, pretty quickly got, well, he, he read law, became a lawyer, um, and pretty quickly got into politics in his youth. So, but as a kid, okay, also as a kid, what kind of school is, is a kid going to? Is there a first grade? No, in fact, um, 
uh, I got to tell you, I'm not an expert on his childhood or his youth, but um, my understanding is he really didn't go to a school at all until uh, either right up till the time he went to William and Mary or very close to that. It was it was basically home tutoring. Um, so yeah. they could have tutors, and that's what kids did. Yeah, well, wealthy kids did, yeah. But if yeah. you're Abraham Lincoln, you just read books. Exactly, yeah. And then do they have a college exam, an entrance examination or something? No, I, it was kind of a feeder system, you know, that you would you would prepare for it uh, with a tutor or with a school of some kind, like a prep school sort of deal. And they would kind of feed you into that system. So, um, again, based in those days largely on wealth and position and you know, context. I'd like to compare, I not guess. That, not that that's not unknown today. <laughs> it seems like I'm comparing everything to modern day, and yeah, I guess that's yeah. true. I can't imagine he, he had a lot of school debt when he got out of William and Mary in 1763, yeah, or whatever it like is, that, yeah. which is an, another very different thing. Yeah. And what are the first signs of, of greatness? How early did the, was he different, and did people notice? Hmm, this guy may be something special. And what what was he noticed for? Well, he was a, a member of the uh, Virginia House of Burgesses, which was the state legislature. Or actually, it wasn't the state; it was the colonies' legislature, and um, became well known then not for his oratory because he wasn't a speaker. He was never a strong speaker, but he was always a terrific writer and thinker. And uh, people uh, gravitated to him for those two skills. And, um, you know, he, he became a rival of Patrick Henry. A lot of people uh, today think of the founders as being all one big fraternity, uh, you know, arm in arm, and wasn't it at all the case. Uh, Patrick Henry and he were pretty bitter rivals. Um, and um, the revolution comes around and, well, the origins of the revolution, you know, in the 1760s and into the 70s, and he was uh, in that circle from the beginning. Uh, so the, if I understand it correctly, the Virginia House of Burgesses was really where it was at. Except, you know, if you're up here, maybe Boston, but the other, the other headquarters was Virginia, right? Right. They were the people that really made the difference. So sure. if you were in that, you really had a lot of clout. Yeah, well, you know, as the colonies began to communicate and cooperate, um, with the revolutionary movement, uh, he was one of the leaders from the start uh, at a very young age. I mean, he was 33 years old when he wrote the Declaration of Independence, uh, the primary author of it. There was some tinkering and some editing by others, but he was the primary author at that very early age. And uh, before that, he had been a prominent lawyer, legislator uh, in Virginia on the um, I guess you'd call it today, in today's terms, the progressive side of things, uh, very much uh, f in favor of the common man and democracy and really pushed hard against slavery, by the way, in his youth um, and kept hitting his head against the wall, just couldn't get anywhere with it. Yeah. I guess it's, I have to ask, if he was, had such a beef with slavery, why did he have slaves? And yeah. That'd be a natural question. Sure. Well, the first answer is he was born into it. You know, that was... That was the system um, to begin with. And secondly, uh, through his wife's father, he inherited several hundred slaves. And, um, you know, it's hard for us to look back in 2019 and uh, understand what that system was like, but it was the system. Uh, but nonetheless, he knew from the start that it was wrong. Um, he called it um, uh, 
you know, a, an abominable crime and uh, a hideous blot on society. I can see where being born into it might make you feel better about it, but he did not feel better about it. He called it a blot and a hideous crime. Yet, even feeling that way, he kept the slaves. He did, but again, it, it wasn't like in those. And I'm not necessarily apologizing I know. for him, you know. But I'm just but, trying to understand. But I think it's important. You and I were speaking uh, 20 minutes ago about yep. imposing 2019 values on things that happened mm -hmm. in in 1990, let alone in 1790. Um, so uh, you know, you sort of play the hand you're dealt to some extent. But um, he he was definitely um, on the progressive side of slave owners as well. All right. You know, uh, they were reasonably well treated. They had opportunities to earn some money, to advance within the system. You know, freedom of movement for trusted people, and always on sort of the progressive end of this of the slavery culture, if there is such a thing. So let's get to his enemies and allies. You, you talked about Patrick Henry. It's always interesting to find out who lines up on whose side. Who lined up with? Let's who lined up against Thomas Jefferson, and then after that, who lined up with him? Well, when you get into the um, the post-revolutionary period. I mean, in the revolutionary period, I think they were they were all pretty much pulling the same boat. You know, they had different views and and different levels of uh, radical thought and the rest. But but once the revolution was over, it very quickly degenerated into very fierce rivalries and even hostilities between uh, those two factions. You know, the Federalists and what was called the Democratic Republicans, which was his party. So Alexander Hamilton, bitter rival? Bitter rival. Uh, they, they really hated each other personally as well as politically, but respected each other in a, in a strange I way. I can see why politically, because one yeah. is a federalist and believes in central government so you can have a central bank. Yeah. The other one is the opposite, but that's the political part. Why personally? What was the personal well, uh, animus I, about? Um, I, I think that... Um, I mean, I'm a Jefferson guy, so you got to take what I say with a grain of salt. But I think Hamilton had an edge to him personally, um, kind of a, uh, a superiority, you know, complex of sorts. And also just day after day, I mean, Hamilton was Secretary of the Treasury for Washington and Jefferson was Secretary of State in a cabinet consisting of five people. So, so small room. Small room, <laughs> yeah. small group of, of powerful, headstrong men. And he and Hamilton are on opposite sides of things. He said it that he said the, that every day in Washington's cabinet, he and Hamilton were like two fighting cocks in a ring, you know, day after day, and it just became almost a blood a blood, you know, feud. Dang. Who uh, else was in the cabinet? Who was who else was in those that room? Well, uh, Secretary of War, uh, which which changed quite a bit. Washington had several secretaries of war. Um, and uh, attorneys general also of less, you know, renown. But uh, Hamilton and Jefferson were definitely the two marquee players. Okay. Uh, John Adams was the vice president, you know, under... And under their Rome. relationship evolved back and forth, right? Yeah, it did. Can you talk a little bit more about sure. Adams and Jefferson's relationship? Sure. Okay. Well, uh, they got to know each other in the Continental Congress, um, in the 1770s, and were friends. Um, uh, Adams was a, was somewhat older. Uh, Adams was known as a speaker, a very forceful, effective speaker, and Jefferson as the writer. Um, Adams was instrumental in getting him appointed to write the Declaration of Independence. 
And they served together as diplomats after the revolution, too, or during the revolution in France and in, in England, and became very close. At the same time? At the same time, yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, then they had a falling out because, uh, among other things, Jefferson unseated Adams from the presidency in 1800. And that was a bitter, nasty campaign. Every bit as bitter and nasty as the ones we have today. Uh, and then in their old age, they, they reconciled and had a, a long correspondence that uh, lasted the rest of their lives. Any, so Hamilton, Adams, and, the, and Patrick Henry, can you talk more about that relationship? Yeah, well, um, I don't know that Adams had much direct contact with Patrick Henry, um, but uh, Jefferson being in the same beehive with you know, Patrick Henry in the House of Burgesses, uh, Henry was from a very uh, uh, poor background, uh, had been a barkeeper and uh, just a different cultural background from Jefferson, and a real strong populist and um, just a rival. You know, there's only so many fish that can fit in a tank, and uh, Patrick Henry wanted to be the big fish. Uh, Jefferson was a natural rival. So, Jeff, my reading on Jefferson tells me he's kind of a dandy. He would like spend a lot of money shopping at the equivalent on, of Newbury Street, buying red leather gloves and stuff, which I totally understand. Uh, to what degree is that the case, and was that ever a problem for him? Did it serve him well, or was it a, an issue? Did people... Well, I'd say two things about that. One is that he changed dramatically. Uh, in, his, in his younger days, he was a bit of a dandy, and uh, their painting of him very dandified when he was in London uh, as a diplomat. But um, as he got older, he just totally abandoned all of that. And as president, uh, was known for being an actually sloppy dresser. I mean, he would wear run-down pants and old shirts and slippers with the toes poking out. Um, didn't That's care at all. Back when you could. Pardon me? Back then you could. Yeah, exactly. Uh, didn't care at all about clothing and actually made a, an effort to project that kind of common man. You know, I'm not the aristocrat. I'm, I'm one of the people. Um, but he always spent more than he than he had. Uh, if it wasn't on clothing, it was on. So other, he was always things. kind of in debt. He always in debt, and uh, most of those planters were. But he was in deep debt, never got out of it. Uh, You'd think a guy as smart as that would not be in yeah, debt. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, as the book says, at one point he realized toward the end of his presidency how deeply in debt he was, and he said he had just been keeping rough numbers in his head, you know, of where he was, and it turned out he was not where he thought he was. They didn't pay. We have to go, but they didn't pay you much for being president then, right? It was just kind of a, you. You did it for the service of it, correct? Well, that's not quite right. There was uh, he was the president was paid twenty five thousand oh. dollars a year, which was a was lot right. of money. That's pretty good. A lot of money. I'm glad you clarified. But that. but out of that money, he paid for his servants and their food and his food and everything else. Uh, now we we talked about his enemies. How about his allies? James Madison would be number one. Madison. Mm -hmm. Everyone tends to like Madison and kind of an undersung president, undersung founder, correct? Yeah, I think so. But not among historians, but I think most people don't know much about Madison. I don't want to get into too much about Madison, but you only hear about Madison as a president. I only hear about him mm -hmm. as a president. What, was he active? What did he do prior to that? He was Jefferson's secretary of state. Okay. And uh, he was the principal author of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. So that right there is... Pretty good yeah. credential, yeah. So we had Madison on his side. Yeah. What about Washington? 
Uh, Washington, he always respected Washington, and Washington respected him. Washington was kind of a Federalist, right? He was he a Federalist. To, he had to get well, stuff Well, put done. it this way. He wouldn't have said he was a Federalist. He didn't believe in parties, and he was hostile to the idea. But, but he, he certainly wanted was, an army, which is a national yeah, thing. Yeah, no, he was, he was definitely the, a Federalist president, whether he liked the title or not. Um, but, yeah, Washington had a good relationship with Jefferson, made him Secretary of State. Uh, they had a big falling out at one point. Uh, because of these political differences. And uh, Jefferson wrote a letter to a friend that really heavily criticized Washington, and it got leaked. Of course it got leaked. <laughs> and uh, that put an end to that, that friendship. But, uh, and they never reconciled? Well, I mean, they weren't enemies. You know, they didn't have shouting matches. But, uh, no, they were, they were never close after What did that. the letter say? It, said, uh, it, it referred to both Hamilton and Washington, and it didn't put their names in, but people knew who they were. And it basically said they were, they were uh, flunkies for the British Empire, which was not a good thing to be for Washington and Hamilton. Did he use an equivalent of the word flunkies? Or? Uh, I, I, I don't remember the exact words. It was something like, uh, our Samson in the field, meaning Washington, and our Solon in the council, meaning Hamilton, uh, have become... Tools of the harlot England, I think, is the way he put it. People could just write better than, <laughs> yeah. than right? Yeah, they didn't. Uh, and speak better. They did. They did. And they wrote very well, too. Yeah. Anybody else to include on the list of allies? Um, yeah, James Monroe was the next president after Madison. He was on Jefferson's team. So uh, Jefferson didn't like being president much, right? Um, I think that's fair to say. I, I don't know if he. Why, yeah, I mean, why I do you suppose that was? The constraints of the office were? Um, he didn't like confrontation, oh. for one thing. Yeah. He was never never big on conflict. And, of course, there's endless conflict there. Um, and, um, you know, he was crucified and attacked constantly by the Federalists, and that's not pleasant. I suppose a writer uh, gets out of his element when, you, when you're president because you have to speak. You have to interact verbally. He, he didn't ever give a speech as president except his two inaugural addresses. That's it. No speeches at all. Um, he obviously had to speak to people at the dinner table, but he was very good at that. Right. He was a great conversationalist, but he was not a good speaker. In fact, John Adams said he couldn't remember him once speaking in the Continental Congress. Uh, he just was not an orator. How about demons, things that troubled him throughout his life? Hmm. Well, I, I know he had... Uh, he had... Uh, uh, the spending problem, right. that's, that's one thing. Spending, you know, keeping within his means financially. Um, people accused him of uh, being uh, too sympathetic to the French Revolution, and for a long time he was, even when they started chopping people's heads off. Um, he gradually cooled on that and, and realized it was excessive, but um, he got tarred with that, you know, being the... Parisian revolutionary monster, as one of his enemies called him. Um, but uh, he didn't drink to excess. You know, he loved his wine, uh, real connoisseur. All kinds of wine. He had dozens of different kinds of wine. He collected because he spent a lot, probably way too much money on exactly. it. Exactly. <clears throat> uh, but he was, not a, he was not a drunkard. He never really drank to excess. Um, a great gourmet also. Uh, introduced a lot of fancy French food to uh, the United States. So he grew up 
with a, in a wealthy family mm -hmm. and became accustomed to a certain level of mm -hmm. living, which he always had trouble affording on his own. Yeah, trouble, sorry? Affording on his own. Yeah, uh, I mean, he, was, he always lived uh, like a rich man, yeah. but he didn't always have the resources. How about his wife? Was his wife sickly? Was it, do I remember it was Jefferson that used to always want to be excused from writing? To look, I really got to go home to my wife. Well, his his wife died at thirty three, I think it was, uh, from childbirth or the after effects of childbirth, um, back in the seventeen eighties, and so he was widowed uh, at a pretty early age and never remarried. Um, the family lore was that she had made him promise on her deathbed not to remarry, but he certainly never did. What about the Sally Hemings? Can you, you know, spend some time on that and, and talk mm -hmm. about w the time frame for that? Yeah. His relationship and the, the, the alleged bearing of his children? Yeah, well, the latter has pretty much been almost proved scientifically. You know, DNA uh, pretty much has that nailed down. There's a, there's a hypothetical story where, you know, a cousin of his uh, could have been the father, but it's very hypothetical and very far-fetched. But the summary of it quickly is that she was a... Uh, uh, it's complicated, but uh, she was actually his wife's half-sister oh. because uh, his wife's father had, you know, owned Sally Hemings's mother and had a relationship with her. And Sally Hemings and her siblings were the offspring of, of that relationship. Um, and um, when he was in Europe as a diplomat, she came over with his young daughter, brought his young daughter over when she was 15, I think, something like that as a kind of a governess. And by the time he came home, she was more than a governess, you know, with him. Um, and once she had set foot in, on French soil, she was free under French law, but uh, agreed to come back with him, as did her brother, um, on the promise that he would do this and that and free her children and treat her, treat her well, which he did. And um, the, the, I'm not an authority on it, but the people who are, uh, will make a very strong case that it was not a coercive relationship, that it was a mutual uh, affection, if not love. And six children with her? I don't remember the number. It was somewhere in that range, four or Which five. Which is different than one, because yeah. it's, it's not like, whoops. It, right. It's a, a he's, he knows what he's doing. Right. Yeah. Let's see, check. I have a couple more minutes here. Uh, now about Monticello, it, the, the actual Monticello. A little bit about the evolution of that, and it took. He was working on that for a long time. How, what it started out as, and how it changed and evolved. Yeah, well, first of all, he built it from scratch on a mountaintop. Uh, well, it's called Monticello, which I think means little mountain in Italian. But uh, people thought he was nuts to put a house on the top of a mountain at a time when everything had to be brought up the mountain, you know, in by wagon, uh, including water. So, uh, but that's where he wanted to be, and. Uh, started in his early 30s uh, from scratch. He was an architect, among other things. Why did he want to be on the mountain? Um, I, well, first of all, I think he thought it was healthy, which it probably was, you know, cooler air and away from, um, you know, what, what all kinds of crazy cockamamie health theories they had in those days. But he liked the mountains. He was born in the mountains. And, um, and uh, there's a lovely spot. And he, uh, he oversaw the building of it, the design of it, constant renovations of it uh, for the rest of his life. And uh, that's, he really enjoyed doing that. 
I went as a freshman in high school, but I can't remember. There, there are a lot of things to see there. I know there's a clock, mm-hmm. and, the, and the way it's built has something to do with the calendar. And counterweights and yeah. yeah. Can you t- talk about some of the things that you one could see there if one went when? Well, it's a beautiful place, and uh, anybody who has the chance uh, should go. It's um, it's a gorgeous house and a gorgeous setting. All kinds of devices and uh, sort of gadgets that he invented or perfected. Um, the clock is an example. There's weights and counterweights that go through the floor and back up again. Why did he do that? He just loved that sort of thing. He 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 would love to take things apart, put them back together, and figure out how they worked and refine them and redesign them. And he invented a plowshare that changed agriculture. He invented a coding device that was used until World War II. Um, a coding device? Yeah, uh, a tool that basically a spool with wooden rings around it with letters and numbers, and you would change them around and code it to a certain you know, you, you'd know I'm using pattern A, A1, and I tell you I'm using A1. Okay. And if you had the same device, you'd set it to A1 and be able to, you know, pr- uh, translate what I was sending you. I could see where he'd be much happier doing that kind of stuff than in the confrontational world of politics. Absolutely. He enjoyed that very much. And that's what he, he said many times that he was, he was, uh, he was meant to be a scientist. Uh, he didn't use the word because they used philosopher then or a, but they meant scientist, and um, that's what he wanted to do and loved to do. But the 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 demands of his time, he said, and his country uh, made him do what he kind did. Kind of a reluctant hero. Yeah, I think that's fair. And he was the person that commissioned Lewis and Clark, right? He was, which is consistent with his love of science and nature and the West and the West. That yeah. was pr- how important was the Lewis and Clark expedition? And what besides cataloging mm-hmm. flora and fauna, what was the what was the purpose of it? Well, um, Lewis, first of all, Lewis was his secretary in the White House, his personal aide in the White House. I did not know that. Yeah, and uh, also a protege from, from very young age as a child, actually. His father had died young, a neighbor of Jefferson's, and he knew him all his life. But um, the purpose was to, first of all, to see if there was a, a water route to the Pacific. You know, that was always the holy grail in those days. They never did find that. But is that uh, the north, the northwest, northwest passage, passage? Okay. yeah, and all that. Um, but uh, you know, it's basically exp- exploration. What's out there? Who's out there? Um, what are the mineral resources? Where are the rivers? How are we going to cross that country uh, and get across that vast expanse of territory? So, what's the relationship in the time of the Louisiana Purchase and Lewis and Clark? Well, it, it coincided almost to the day. It's it's in fact uh, a novelist would be laughed at for writing it because the. Word came to Jefferson on the 4th of July <laughs> uh, that the purchase had been made, and uh, Lewis and Clark were ready to set off the next day, just co- almost coincidentally. So w- wouldn't it be to send people out to see what we were buying, kind of? Well, they'd already bought it. Um, what we'd bought? Yeah. and, and there so was, what do we got here for resources now? It was a no-brainer to buy it. It doubled the size of the country, number one. Number two, it swallowed up the whole Mississippi River, so it took away that you know that great took away access to the Mississippi from other countries. Exactly, and Napoleon was a threat, and uh, the fear was that Napoleon's army would be landed in the West and have easy access to hit us. So there was all kinds of great advantages to it: a lot of mineral wealth, obviously, a lot of huge amount of land, and um, 
you know, groom for expansion. That's interesting to think. What what might have happened if he hadn't purchased that? Because someone else might have purchased it. Yeah, we or, might have a neighbor, or Napoleon might have held on to it, and uh, it might be France over there. Yeah, we might all be speaking French tonight. That's not that <laughs> far fetched. We probably wouldn't be speaking French, but they passed the Mississippi. Might yeah, that's not out of the question. No, not at all. Yeah, that's oh, I'm a little late for a break. Rob, let's do that break. It's WBZ. Lucky Land Casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Why don't we talk about the White House and how it was, in some ways, Monticello on the Potomac. What did Jefferson do with the place? Well, first of all, uh, Jefferson was the first president who spent a full term in the White House. Uh, uh, John Adams had been there for three months um, and basically had time to take his hat off when Jefferson beat him and took over. So, uh, And when he moved in, it was pretty much a shell. There were 36 rooms, and only six of them were functional. Oh. Uh, the rest were didn't have ceilings and floors and that kind of thing. Uh, so he, the first thing he did is, with his architectural talent and interest, uh, sort of planned and built out the rest of that building, a lot of which you know still survives today uh, with the help of a professional architect. Is it all... Well, how much of it's original and how much has been replaced? Well, like, the British burned it down in oh, 1814. Right. Completely down. Except for the wall. You know, the exterior walls were standing, but everything else was okay. gutted out. So it was uh, rebuilt yeah, at that point. How exacting was the, was it rebuilt? Um, well, so it, the, they so basically the, had to rake it out and start again. But they it, used the same blueprints and everything? Uh, more or less, Internally? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I interrupted. Go ahead. No. Uh, so there was the physical part. The, the other part important part is that Jefferson took over the presidency at a time when it was trending toward an authoritarian kind of system, an oligarchy, really, um, which was the federalist inclination toward wealth and upper class and, uh, you know, privilege. And um, he made a, a very big point of eliminating all of that so that instead of these fancy receptions and full dress events and parted wigs and all of that, wiped all of that out, um, opened his door to anybody, literally anybody, who wanted to come and talk to him about anything. So from the governor of Virginia to the lady that washed the floors, we're all you welcome. You could talk to the president. You could talk to the president, and he would, he would spend time with you. There was no security of any kind at that time, right? Uh, none, actually, literally none. Zero? Yeah, zero. Would you have to... Do you think you would have to greet somebody or ask permission, or could you just walk in the front door? You'd walk in, literally walk in the front door, uh, ask the doorkeeper to see the president. He'd show you in, and you'd sit down, and an hour later, Jefferson would come out and shake your hand. That's wow. really quite amazing. Uh, but he did that on purpose to project, you know, this is the people's house. It's not the rich people's house. It's not the privileged people's house. How come? Well, we worry about assassination now. How come they didn't? Assassination... Uh, they had guns then? Yeah. Well, um, are, are, are we worse people today? 
uh, <laughs> I'm tempted to say yes. Okay. <laughs> but next uh, question. <laughs> but, I guess pretty obviously yes. Yeah. Well, you know, even in Lincoln's time, uh, Seward was his Secretary of State, and and they worried a little bit about it. But he said, you know, assassination is not an American crime. It doesn't happen in this country because it never had. Uh, so that really wasn't much that they. And that was about. during wartime. Yeah. And they were sort civil of worried. War. Yeah. Like civil war, and yeah. they were sort of worried about it. Yeah. 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 Um, so um, Jefferson basically um, uh, decentralized things, you know, at the White House and, and uh, took away all the pomp and circumstance and made it the people's house. Wow, it's, the people's house had a lot of rooms for, a, pe- for a people's house. Most of which were empty. <laughs> they were just kind of empty. <laughs> Including and the East Room. Closed yeah. down, they didn't heat them or anything. The East Room didn't even have finished walls. Uh, it was a big storage room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That is so cool. I have a short period of time. One more question. What do you suppose is the reason that the founders could get that massive thing, huge thing done? They could compromise. They could hammer it out. Whereas today, there's no way that we'd even come close to that with the people we have and the way things are now. What's the difference? Well, uh, the first thing I would say is that they were brilliant people. They were just smarter people. They were brilliant people. They were the best that we had. I mean, they were the best minds and people that okay. in the country. Good point. Secondly, they were all on the same mission. They were starting a country together, and they, were, they, they had all kinds of conflicting interests and things, but they worked it out and found ways to compromise. See, uh, is it possible they were more public servant oriented than More, more than possible. That's exactly the case. Yeah. They cared about the public and not themselves. They now cared about the country and the public and the, and, and the principles that they stood for. They'd fought a war for it and risked hanging. Yeah. And I mean, this is something they didn't, a lot of them didn't even want to do, and they were tired of it. They did it out of duty. Correct. And there was a much stronger sense of duty and honor and integrity in those days. Yeah. Okay. I can only hope that people, will, everyone will read your book and long for, pine for those days and teach, teach their kids to be better. Thank you, James Conroy. Thank you for having me. I yeah. appreciate it. Uh, Jefferson's White House, Monticello on the Potomac. So you get the the double whammy. You get to talk. You get to read about Jefferson and the White House and Monticello, the triple, the triple play. Thank you. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.